0: Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, and the Family Podcast Network, and we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia, as well as 16.50 a.m. in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond, Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Tony Faber, a VCU Health Associate Professor and also a research scientist with the Massey Cancer Center. He joins us today for a conversation about advancements in cancer care and therapies for patients, including research he's involved with on examining the prospect of a novel targeted therapy for an often fatal pediatric cancer. With that, welcome to the program, Dr. Dr. Faber, thanks for joining us today.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's our pleasure. And let's just jump right in here. Before we chat about your research, I want to zoom out big picture for baseline purposes. In simplest terms, cancer is a disease in which some of the body's cells grow uncontrollably and abnormally, forming tumors. Across the globe, cancer was responsible for 10 million deaths in 2021. That's one in six deaths in the U.S. Cancer is linked to more than 600,000 deaths annually. Cancer care has obviously come quite a long way over the years thanks to clinical research advancements related to genetic testing and personalized medicine based on tumor molecular characteristics, targeted immunotherapy, surgical advancements, and more. Of the many clinical research options available for a research scientist like yourself, what attracted you to cancer research in particular?
1: When I was starting, this was in the early 2000s, and targeted therapies were really emerging, and these are specific drug targets that target specific proteins in the cell. Proteins are what our DNA makes It's kind of the final product, and we've known for a long time, maybe 30, 40 years, that problems in that DNA cause a lot of the cancers and it causes very specific problems in the DNA cause these cancers. But traditionally, as you've summed up very nicely, it's been chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and surgery has been sort of the mainstay over the last 50 years until targeted therapy sort of came on the scene. Now it's been probably about 20 or 25 years or so. When I was starting, I was starting at Mass General Hospital where many of these targeted therapies were first being tested in patients and the data was really exciting. Patients were not only responding better to these treatments but they're much more tolerable than traditional chemotherapies and and radiation and it was really the beginning of the era there and so I had a nice opportunity to join with the leading and and sort of the leaders in the field at the forefront and move this field forward And, and now Target therapies have expanded from <clears throat> just a few paradigms to uh, a number of different paradigms and continue to sort of grow.
0: Do you wish you could focus on practicing medicine without all the distractions? Covaris is here to help. As a leader in medical professional liability insurance with more than 45 years experience, Covaris provides insurance protection with data-driven predictive modeling to help you mitigate the risk of claims. By combining insurance protection with risk analytics services, you can reduce distractions and focus on improving clinical, operational, and financial outcomes. Covaris is reinventing what you should expect from your medical professional liability provider. Find out all Covaris can offer you at covaris.com. That's c-o-v-e-r-y-s.com. Insurance products issued by Medical Professional Mutual Insurance Company and its insurance subsidiaries, Boston, Massachusetts. And speaking of moving this field forward, let's segue to your current research, which focuses on neuroblastoma, which is a cancer that develops from immature nerve cells, often in the glands and around the kidneys. It most commonly affects children five and younger and is responsible for the most cancer-related deaths among children in that age group. You're part of a team of researchers that has identified a potential breakthrough treatment option for this form of cancer, and you've recently published the results of that research in a scientific journal. So if you would tell us about that work and what the findings are.
1: Yeah, so one interesting aspect of this I didn't get into is, Targeted therapies really emerge on the scene in adult cancers first. There's a number of reasons for that. Pediatric cancers tend to be a little bit different. The targeted therapies that may work for pediatric cancers tend to be different than the ones that do work for adult cancers. And there's several problems that go along with it. The proteins that are targetable, those genes that are mutated are different. And chemists can't seem to make or have more difficult time making drugs against those targets than they do in the adult. So pediatrics has really fallen behind in the targeted therapy sort of paradigm. The work in neuroblastoma is really a sort of a first movement into targeted therapies. There is a, a very small percent of patients that do respond to about 3% to inhibitors called ALK inhibitors. The other 97% of patients don't really have a benefit for targeted therapies. There's a pathway in neuroblastoma called the MAP kinase pathway. MAP kinase pathway is active in both adult and pediatric cancers like neuroblastoma. But like I said, the reasons why it's active are different. And we haven't been able to really chemically go after the reasons in the pediatric cancers like we've been able to in the adult cancers. And therefore, it hasn't translated to successful targeted therapies. That may have changed. There's a new targeted therapy against the MAP kinase pathway called shp 2 inhibitors And our work was really the first work to identify shp two inhibitors as being effective mAP kinase pathway target inhibitors in neuroblastoma.
0: Some people listening to this may wonder about the process for this kind of clinical research. You gave uh, a bit of an overview there, and and I want to try to summarize this. Obviously, I'm not the expert that you are, but in this case, your research involved testing a drug compound for effectiveness and shrinking tumors in mice, which were the test subjects in this study. Without Mm -hmm. some of the Potential harmful side effects of other treatment options that have been studied. That work involves, as I understand it, clinicians and scientists from VCU and Harvard and Georgetown and other research centers collaborating on this work. So, on an effort like this, what's the typical timeline and workflow or the order of operations for such an undertaking?
1: So we've had a we've been blessed with wonderful collaborators. First of all, we work closely with a screening team from the Mass General Hospital where I came from called the Center for Molecular Therapeutics that identifies new positive targets in cancer. So there's a very big screen, thousands of cancer cell lines representing dozens and dozens of different cancers, and they screen different drugs. And because of those numbers, they're able to tell which drugs have activity in which cancers. And SHIP 2 inhibitors sort of fell out of that screen, and a collaborator there called me up because we know we're interested in neuroblastoma, and we decided to work on this together specifically. When we brought into the lab, there are a lot of biochemical and molecular biology experiments that are done here. I'm not going to bore anybody with those details, but I will say that the postdocs and research technicians work extremely hard here, put in a lot of hours, do a lot of experiments, to really produce the data that we can get excited about. And along the way, there's a lot of negative data, the life of a scientist. But once in a while, we see things that are promising and have potential. When we worked SHP2 inhibitors up in the lab, we saw that they had specific activity in certain neuroblastomas. Like many scientists, the next step is to put these into mice. You can put the tumors in the mice. It's the closest thing we have to see if this may work in people. And when we tested uh, these inhibitors in these mice, both the inhibitors were very tolerable by the mice, and of course we saw some very nice neuroblastoma-specific activity. There's one more piece to the puzzle. We were able to identify what's called a biomarker. That means a gene that's either expressed or not expressed within a cancer that helps tell you whether that cancer is going to respond to the therapy. In our case, it was a gene called NF1 that influences that MAP kinase pathway. And so our hope is with our clinical collaborator, John Glott, who is head of the NCI Pediatric Branch, who has a number of neuroblastoma patients in this clinic, and thank God this is a rare cancer, Um, but unfortunately, because of its difficulty to be treated, it now accounts for about 13% of all pediatric cancer-related deaths. A lot of the patients that are struggling After initial therapy are at the NCI and that's where we're hoping we can move these SHIP2 inhibitors into part of their, part of their uh, cancer care treatment.
0: Well you mentioned that clinical research involves, and I use this term loosely, a lot of trial and error, and as you pointed out, you know not always are, are these efforts successful or do they they yield positive results in this case, so far, it sounds like things are progressing in a positive fashion, so I know that from research to receiving all the necessary regulatory approvals and bringing new therapeutic modalities to market. It can be a very costly and time-consuming enterprise. Uh, You alluded to some of the next steps in this process for this body of research, which includes more testing alongside an approved neuroblastoma immunotherapy and then potential clinical testing, as you mentioned, at the National Cancer Institute. So looking ahead, where does this research go from here? And in a best-case scenario, theoretically, how soon could this therapy be available as a treatment option if things continue to proceed according to plan and the initial research results bear out?
1: Difficult to predict, but I do think we have several things in our favor here. And there are. let me just talk about some of the intrinsic challenges here. The first is that this isn't an FDA-approved drug yet. It is, hence the excitement, because it's a novel drug. And of course, the step-step, the approval is quite laborious, and it starts really in the adult populations almost always, and there's reasons for that. Some of us, because the number of patients, and we're able to get safety and efficacy data from those trials that help us design a trial in pediatrics. One of the other challenges in pediatrics is again of sort of blessing in disguise, or, to, or really a really double-edged sword, I should say, that because it's a rare disease. It's difficult to assemble clinical trials where you have numbers enough where you can really see the benefit or, on the other side of it, a non-benefit of a drug. Mm -hmm. And that's because you're just looking at a handful of patients usually as opposed to some of these very large multi-phase institutional uh, late-stage trials with cancers that you have hundreds and hundreds of patients. It's really akin to a good comparison that some folks listening that may know what ALS is. It's really akin to ALS. ALS is another horrible disease um, that's really untreatable, and it's very difficult to, to create clinical trials there because there's just not a ton of patients that are available for the trials and that are eligible for the trials. So those are some of the challenges in pediatrics. Another challenge that fortunately just exists is The market for pediatrics are are smaller, so sometimes because there's such a high need in in all different areas of cancer research, sometimes they're not always prioritized as as I wish they were, but those are some of the challenges. Some of the positives, though, is these drugs have really, these SHP2 inhibitors have really caught some steam. Several companies have been developing them, and I don't know the number offhand, but there are at least five or six different ones. I think, right now, currently in clinical trials. And why that's so important is because you have a number of different companies, a number of different agents that are distinct ships to inhibitors that may have different success rates. And may also be looking at the markets a little bit differently. So the chances of bringing one of these into pediatrics, the more of these inhibitors that are around, the greater that chance is. Um, so that's something to be very positive about. The other thing to be very positive about is the early tolerability data from these compounds has been positive. So these do look like they're going to be well-tolerated and hopefully there'll be several of these agents that can be tested in pediatrics and then in the not-too-distant future. I don't want to put a timeline on it, but in the not-too-distant future.
0: Understood, and and it was an interesting point you made just about some of the sample size challenges that exist uh, in the pediatric patient population. Before we conclude, Dr. Faber, it's a tradition here on the Patients Come First (laughs) podcast to ask each guest a pair of questions that are a bit more personal and fun. To keep things interesting, we have a list of 10 mystery questions from which you can choose. So if you would, please pick two numbers between 1 and 10, and I'll ask you the corresponding questions. 2 and 7. Okay, two. Favorite number. All right. Seven is a good number. Lucky seven. Um, if you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival <laughs> kit Sorry,
1: okay, one one book, album, one and album, movie. And, and movie. Well Correct. So first, I'll... Personally, i use the generic answer for the book. It's, it's how to build a ship, <laughs> so we have a chance of getting off. I'm a big Dermot Kennedy fan, so I would listen to Maybe Without Fear. I think that if I had something to play it on, it's a reasonably long album, so I don't know if the, how long the batteries will last. Tell them without fear now. Without fear now, and the I'm sorry. What was the last question? Movie. Movie. Mm-hmm. Ugh, that's a tough. Uh, that's a tough one. I think I would want to laugh because I would be um, probably pretty frustrated with my boat building skills after <laughs> day two or day three. So probably the greatest movie out of Rhode Island: Dumb and Dumber. Uh, those would <laughs> be my three selections. Peter Farley.
0: Yes. What's the most annoying sound in the world? And then yeah, uh, that's it. Right. Exactly.
1: What do you think the chances are of a
0: guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. And we really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you married. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance? Yeah! I read you. And then uh, number seven was your other pick. If you could choose one superpower to have or any one skill to instantly master, what would it be and why?
1: One superpower to have, one skill to master. Well, again, <laughs> the obvious answer would be to be in a tireless swimmer, because um, then I would. Really <laughs> well, no, this this this
0: doesn't this this is separate. So this doesn't presuppose that you're oh, stuck so on, the, not island on the island. No, no, not on this the is now. this is separate okay, from just that.
1: Generally yeah. speaking, yes. Um, I'm not. I'll try not to say something too sentimental here. Um, I would like to. What really bothers me as I get older, a lot of things. Um, I would like to be able, I guess I'll, I'll give you a generic answer to see into the future. So I can't, there's so many benefits from that. I probably can quantify it, but I would like to be able to, that would be my superpower or I guess a skill that I really improve on one or the other. Okay. But that would be my answer.
0: Well, I appreciate you taking a few moments to be with us today and for sharing some of your your thoughts and some of your work. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. We want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Tony Faber, for joining us today. So thank you, sir.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.